Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So I wanted to begin this morning by reading one of my favorite stories. Uh, it's from uh, Tony Campolo's book, The Kingdom of God is a Party. And it's one of my favorite stories of his. Uh, he writes, I do a lot of public speaking in my work, and it takes me all kinds of places. Some of them exotic, and some of them not so exotic. Sometimes I get Honolulu, sometimes Toledo, Ohio. (laughs) Whenever I go to our 50th state, I find myself wide awake long before dawn. Not only do I find myself up and ready to go while almost everyone else is sleeping, but I find I want breakfast when almost everything else on the island is closed. So with this background, you should understand why at 3.30 in the morning, I was wandering up and down the streets of Honolulu looking for some place to get something to eat. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat at one of the stools, uh, at one of the stools at the counter, and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I mean, I did not even want to touch the menu. I was afraid if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out. But it was the only place I could find. The fat guy behind the counter came over and said to me, what do you want? I told him, I said, I want a cup of coffee and a donut. So he poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, and then grabbed the donut off the shelf behind him. Now, I'm a realist, and I know that in the back room of that restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around. But when everything's out front, as I could see it, I would really have appreciated if he'd used a pair of tongs and placed a donut on some wax paper. As I sat there munching my donut, sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort... In marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. Now, this was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting next to me say, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone, So what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, the woman said, sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Why should I have one now? When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the women had left. Then I called over the fat guy behind the counter and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come in here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? Well, because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday, I told him. What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? Cute smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks, and he answered with measured delight, That's great. I like it. That's a great idea. Look, I told him, if it's okay with you, I'll be back here tomorrow morning at about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. So at 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and had made a sign out of a big piece of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated that diner from one end to the other. I had that place looking good. The, women, the woman who did the cooking must have gotten word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. And at 3.30 on the dot, 
The front door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of MC of the affair. And when they came in, we all screamed, Happy birthday! Never had I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. And as she was led to sit at one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. And as we came to the end of our singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. And then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after an endless few seconds, he did. And then he handed her the knife and he told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, I mean, is it okay if I, is it okay if I kind of, well, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it all right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, that's okay. You want to keep the cake? Keep the cake. Take it home all you want, if you want. Can I? She said. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street, a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the school, stool, picked up the cake and carried it like it was the Holy Grail, walked right out the door, and we all stood there motionless. She left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? <laughs> Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. So I prayed for Agnes, prayed for her salvation, prayed that her life would be changed. And that God would be good to her. And when I finished, Harry leaned over the counter. And with a trace of hostility in the voice, his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? <laughs> and in one of those moments, just the right words came, I answered. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for horse at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Harry waited for a moment. And then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was a church like that, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Talk about changing the way people view the church. And I believe that's exactly the church that Jesus came to establish. He came to establish a church where outsiders could become insiders. And where who people, by their own admission, would say they are far from God, would find a place where they could get near to Him, and discover Him, and find the life that He has for them. I believe that is the church that Jesus came to establish. And when we talk about trying to change the way people view the church, we are talking about getting people to see past all the other stuff that sometimes gets in the way. 
Because the view that most people outside the church have looking in is not exactly that kind of church. And we can't change everybody's opinion. We can't change every church, but we can change ourselves. And we can change our church to become more and more that kind of church. Because I believe with all my heart, that's the kind of church Jesus came to start. And I know that's the case because I look at the people he chose from the very beginning. Because the people that Jesus chose to be his followers were not the influential. They were not the rich and powerful. They were not the best educated. They were people like you and like me, like Agnes and her friends. And we're going through this whole series through the book of Luke because we want to see what kind of a leader, what kind of a rabbi Jesus was. And the people that he called, what kind of people were they? And who did they become? Because because a rabbi in Nazareth said, I believe in you. I see something in you that nobody else sees. I think that's the kind of church we want to be. And that's the kind of church that's going to change the way people outside the church look at the church. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the book of Luke, surprisingly enough, chapter 5. And we're going to look at these first group of people that Jesus called to be his disciples. I'm going to learn some things from them because there's some things that Jesus saw in these guys. They weren't the most educated. They weren't the best connected. They weren't the richest. But there were some things that he saw in these guys that made him say, I choose you. I want you. So what are those things so that we can become those kinds of people? So if you want to follow along, we're going to read in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Luke tells the story this way. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, The the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He was at the water's edge with two boats, left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. So he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night and haven't caught a thing. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up to the shore, left everything, and followed him. Then we want to skip down to verse 27. It's a little bit later. After this, Jesus went out and, fought, went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
In this first group of five people that Jesus called, they weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they were teachable. And Jesus saw in them something that not only changed their lives, not only changed the way people um, viewed religion, not only changed the way people related to church and to God, it changed the course of human history. Not because they were rich and powerful, but because they were willing and obedient. And I think there's some qualities, whatever Jesus saw in them, there's some qualities there that I think are good qualities for each and every one of us. Because I think the people that Jesus was looking for some 2,000 years ago are the same kinds of people he's looking for today. Not perfect, not all necessarily well-educated, not at the top of their game, but people who have some particular qualities and are the kind of qualities we want to have. So this morning, that's what we're going to look at. What are the things that Jesus saw in them? And what are the things that he's looking for in you and I that we could be the followers that he wants us to be? And I think the first one is simply this. Jesus continues to look for people who will trust him and will trust him even when it doesn't make sense. He calls four fishermen at one end of the scale. And then at the other end, he's got this tax collector. Fishermen, blue-collar workers... You know, just hard scrabble, make a daily living every day. Just that's where we were. Tax collectors were more on the wealthy side um, because they had a lot of good connections. And these guys are from different parts of the spectrum and in different ways, didn't even get along very well with each other. But Jesus called them all. And the one thing that they had in common was this very thing. They were willing to leave everything and follow him. They were willing to trust him even if it didn't make sense. It says, Peter, Andrew, James, and John pulled their boats up on the shore and left everything and followed him. The tax collector Levi, which by the way is also Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew, same guy, his name was Matthew Levi or Levi Matthew, same guy. But it says, Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Now this is no small thing. For the fishermen, this is like the catch of their lives. They have never had such a successful season, much less evening of fishing, much less day of evening, because it wasn't even evening. It was was morning time. And at the height of their career, Jesus said, okay, now are you willing to leave this behind and come follow me? And they did. Now, for them, it's a little bit different because if this Jesus thing doesn't work out, we can always go back to fishing. We got something to fall back on. For Levi, it was altogether different because Because he was a tax collector, he was seen by his Jewish community as being a collaborator with the enemy. Because they were under Roman occupation. And not only under Roman occupation, they were having to pay taxes to support Caesar back in Rome. And so he's a collaborator. He's a traitor. He is not well liked. In fact, he's more than likely despised by all of his Jewish friends in the Jewish community. And if he leaves that, he's got no group of friends to go to. If he leaves his tax collector, because all his friends are tax collectors. And the trouble is, if he leaves this, not only is he on the outs now with his Jews, but he's also on the outs with Rome, because this is not a job you go back to. (laughs) And so for him, it's leaving everything, but he's willing to do it. They're willing to follow this Jesus, this rabbi who comes along and says, follow me. Now, understand something else about this. Rabbis didn't recruit followers. That was beneath their dignity. See, there was a whole system of schooling, of education, it was primary school, which was called Beth Safir. 
And Bethsaphor was, every, all Jewish children went to that. And it was held at the synagogue. And basically, they learned the Torah. They learned and memorized scripture for the first five, six years of their, their education. That's all they did. They just learned and memorized the Torah. They could recite the Torah from beginning to end by the time they got out, if they were good at it. And, and for most people, that was all the education you got. After that, you got your formal education in the Torah and the scriptures, and then you went and learned your father's craft. You, you just you went on and took a different vocation. Some who were really good and beginning to understand Torah, they got, they got graduated to secondary school. Secondary school was Beth Midrash. And Beth Midrash was, was um, not only just learning and memorizing scripture, it was actually discussing and understanding. And that's why I remember the story of Jesus when he's at the temple at 12 years old, because 12, 13, 14, 15, that's secondary school. He's sitting there and he's discussing with the elders and he's talking to them and debating with them and, and asking questions and giving answers. Okay, that's Beth Midrash. And if you were really a good student, you got to go to secondary school and that's what you did. You learned and, and you learned to discuss scripture, not just memorize it, but actually learn the depths of it and explore the depths of it. And then some of those, many of those people, once they finished secondary school, then they went on and took on a trade but they were a little more knowledgeable about scripture. Very, very few <clears throat> took the next step. It was to become a Talmudim. Talmudim is a disciple. A Talmudim established himself with a rabbi and he follows the rabbi and he learns with the rabbi and he spends his life so that eventually he in turn would become a rabbi. And that was no easy thing. Very, very few people got to become a Talmudim. That was like, that was like getting into UC Berkeley. Okay? That was like, you had, to, you had to apply for that. You had to ask for it. You had to, you had to you know, show your GPA and all, have all your transcripts in order. You had to write a mission statement. I mean, you had to, it took a lot to become a Talmudim. You didn't get chosen. Uh, I mean, someone didn't recruit you for this. You had to go. It was like getting, like I said, it was like getting into UC Berkeley or, or, or Stanford, which is almost as good. So you... <laughs> I mean, this was like, this was like big time stuff. And to have a rabbi now come along to you who probably only got elementary school, maybe secondary school, and says, I choose you, follow me. Man, that's the opportunity of a lifetime. So to drop everything, man, that meant you were, got that, that this rabbi saw something in you that said, you're worth my time. I'm going to pour my life into you. You're going to be one of my Talmudim. And you will in turn become a rabbi. I mean, that was a huge, huge thing. No wonder they left everything. No matter what it cost. Now, like I said, Levi got it. You know, he understood this was like a chance of a lifetime. Whatever he had before, this was the best thing going. Peter and the fishermen... Like I said, they always had this, this I, if it doesn't work out, I can always fall back on fishing. So Jesus does something different. And by the way, this is what he's looking for. He's just looking for people who will be obedient and trusting to him. And for Peter, he had to really get the measure of his heart. And so what he does with Peter is he says, okay, I got to use your boat for my pulpit. Now I want you to go out and go fishing with me. Now, here's the deal. It's one thing to let Jesus use your boat for a pulpit. It's a whole other thing to have him come in and tell you how to run your business. But that's what Jesus is looking for. 
See, there's a lot of us that we come Sunday morning and that Sunday morning hour and we just worship and we praise and we listen and we take notes and everything. But don't tell me how to run my business tomorrow morning. Don't tell me how to handle my finances. Don't tell me how to do my schoolwork. You know, just uh, Sunday morning, Sabbath, that's all good stuff. I love it. I love being with you, Jesus. But don't tell me, don't interfere in my personal life. Don't interfere in my relationships. Don't interfere in my business. That's basically what Jesus is doing with Peter. He's saying, okay, Peter, you're going to have to trust me with everything now. So here's the deal. We're going to put out and we're going to go fishing. And Peter is just like, wait, 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 wait. Jesus, you're a great teacher. Believe me, I love listening to you teach. And you know your stuff when it comes to scripture. But I'm the pro here when it comes to fishing. And let me tell you, daytime is not when you go fishing. The fish are best caught at night. And we have been out all night. We have worked hard all night. We have done everything we know how to do. And we got nothing. So don't come telling me, go out now here in the daytime and start fishing all over again because it ain't just going to happen. I know my business. But he says this incredible line, and I love this line. He says, listen, master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught a thing, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now that is the sentence of a disciple. That we preached on this probably four or five years ago. I said, if we could just learn that one line, you know, when it comes to our personal lives, when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to our marriages, when it comes to our finances, if we could just, if we could just say to Jesus, I don't understand this. It doesn't make sense. It cuts against the grain, but because you say so, I will. In fact, that's such a good line I think we ought to all practice that together. So we're going to say it together. Just on the count of three. Because you say so, I will. One, two, three. Because you say so, I will. Okay, some of you didn't participate. So we'll try it one more time, okay? It's a very simple sentence, but you've got to be able to mean it. One, two, three. Because you say so, I will. I know what my integrity should be in my business dealings, but if I don't be totally upfront, I might lose this sale. But because you say so, I will. I didn't study very hard for the test, and I'm, I'm really tempted to, to cheat on this, but I know that violates your ethics, and I know I should be honest, and so I'm not going to cheat because you say so, I won't. <laughs> A little spin on it. See, that's what it comes down to. Jesus is looking for followers who say, okay, this is what the word of God says, and it doesn't make sense to me sometimes. But because you say so, I will. That's the thing that that Peter showed. I don't understand it, God. It it goes against every business principle I know. I, I know fishing, and this is not how you fish. But because you say so, I will. He's just looking for people who are willing to say, it's not just my Sunday morning attendance or my midweek community group. It's my life. And my answer to you, as best I can every time, Lord, is going to be, if you say so, I will. And Jesus continues to look for those kinds of people. I think he continues to look for followers who are devoted to community, even when it's uncomfortable. 
Notice Jesus didn't just call individuals. He called a group of people. He called a small group together, a group of 12. He put together a community because that was his plan. And that continues to be his plan. It's called the be with plan. That's how you learn from a rabbi. You be with him and you be with his other disciples because that's where you learn. You see, when I'm on my own, when I'm listening to a sermon, when I'm taking notes, when I'm giving mental agreement to everything that I'm hearing, it's very easy for me to believe that I'm more loving than I really am. It's very easy to convince myself that I am kinder than I truly am. It's very easy to convince myself that I am much more spiritual than I really am. But when I have to do life in community with other people, I begin to realize how selfish, how demeaning, how terse I can be. And that's why the be with plan is so important. And it's why we put such an emphasis on being part of a community group. See, Jesus didn't say, I'd like you to be my follower, but I know you got a busy schedule, okay? And I understand that sometimes people in your group can be a little irritating, and I know that sometimes it's just all, you you just don't feel like going out again in the evening. So I'd really like you to be a part of a small group, but I know you got extenuating circumstances, so I show you what, you just show up for the lecture on Sunday morning, and we'll just call it good. That is not what he called us to. He called us to community. Because it's in community that we learn and we grow together. It's in community that we discover the truth about ourselves and the truth about each other. Jesus picked this group of people and you couldn't find a more diverse group of people. Simon Peter is a fisherman, blue collar. Levi Matthew is a tax collector. Okay, And he wasn't just any tax collector. He was like a toll booth tax collector, which meant that it wasn't just, you know, he did your income taxes for you. What he did was he got to sit along the road because everybody had to pay a road tax, like a bridge toll, like we do today. And, and the deal was he could charge whatever he wanted because this is, oh, this is a four wheel cart. Well, it's an extra charge for the four wheels. And let's see how many fish. Oh man, that was a great catch of fish. Okay. You got a dollar per fish, you know, he could, he could charge whatever he wanted. As long as Rome got their part, he made his living on all the extra. And so it is quite possible, although we don't know this for a fact, I'm just conjecture here, okay? But it's quite possible that Peter, with this great catch of fish, he knows this tax collector, Levi, because he's been stopped along the road and had to pay the toll. These guys are not going to get along very well together, but Jesus brings them together. He specifically, Luke specifically mentions these people by name. Simon Peter, he mentioned, his companions, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. By the way, they also had a nickname called Sons of Thunder, Don't know where they got that nickname, but you can kind of guess, okay? So you got Peter, you got James and John, and then you got Levi, this guy, this tax collector, sitting in his toll booth, and he brings them all together. And in fact, there's other, other people that Jesus called. There's another Simon. His name is Simon the Zealot. Okay, remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the different factions there were, political factions in there? Okay, the zealots were like, we're going to overthrow, we're going to get power, we're going to overthrow this Roman government, and, and here's this tax collector who represents Roman government. And Jesus brings them together. Why? Because he wants them to know at the, height, at the heart of what he teaches is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And these aren't just words. These aren't just pious, pious platitudes. This is what you're going to have to learn how to do. So Simon the Zealot, meet Levi the tax collector. If you want to call him Matthew, that's his other name. 
But you got to use one of those two. You can't use any other names for him, okay? <laughs> and he brought them together. Completely different ends of the spectrum. But because love God and love people isn't just nice words. It's what you got to learn how to do. Jesus' plan is that be with plan. Brings them all together. And I am sure, I am sure the number one question on every one of their minds is, why did he invite him? <laughs> why is he in the group? The other people, I like my fishermen friends, but why is this Levi guy here? Every one of them felt that way. Because here's the truth is, in any gathering of people, in any small group gathering of people, in any community group, there are people, Rick Warren calls them EGRs which stands for extra grace required. They are the people who talk too much. They are the people who complain too much. They are the people who, instead of taking a prayer request, want to tell you their whole life story, okay? These are the extra grace people who are in every single small group. And by the way, if you're in one of our community groups and you can't identify that person, I'm just saying, all right? It just might be you. But that's the way Jesus builds his church. That's the way he gathers his disciples. Because this isn't just theory. We're going to learn how to do this. And God will bring people into your life, those EGRs. And some of you have a lot of them. Because you really need to learn this lesson. But that's his purpose. See, that's what Jesus is trying to teach them. You got to learn to trust me, even when you don't understand, and you got to learn how to love one another, even when it's hard. And so he brings this group of people, brings this group of people, and he gathers them together. And that's why we put such an emphasis. From day one, we have had our small group ministries. And if you're not a part of a small group, it's not too late. For the next two weeks, we're continuing to meet here at the church. And I encourage you, if you're not in a small group, find a night of the week that you can be a part of one. And take the risk. And it's still, it's not too late. But, but get connected into a group of people. And we've told people, test drive it. You know, if you find there's too many EGRs in one group, try another group. But get into a group. Because that's where you're going to learn to do life together. That's where you're going to learn to care for each other. That's where you're going to learn to study God's word together. That's where you're going to learn to apply it together. That's where you're going to learn to hold each other accountable and to support each other in prayer. It happens in a community group. So it's not optional stuff. According to Jesus, that's his plan. He is looking for people who are committed and devoted to community, even when it gets uncomfortable sometimes. And the last thing he looks for It's people who will live their lives with a sense of mission. Sense of mission. See, one of the things that I think we've kind of gotten off track, at least in my growing up years in the church, was we have equated discipleship with spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity defined as how well I know scripture, how good I can teach, um, how much better I feel about myself, how more devoted I can be towards Jesus. And, And it's been all about learning and growing my spiritual life. But that is not what a disciple is. 
Jesus chose the disciples so they would follow him, so that they would learn from him, so they would continue on for him. And that's the point of discipleship. And any discipleship program, any discipleship study that does not give us a sense of mission about our lives is not discipleship. It's not discipleship. Because Jesus didn't call these guys and say, we're going to hang out for three years and you're going to get really, really holy with me. What he said was, from now on, you're going to fish for people. You have a whole new direction for your life now. Yeah, you're a good fisherman, and yeah, this is the best catch of fish you ever had in your life, but it's still just fish. And yes, you're going to sell them at market, and you're going to get some money, and you're going to go out, and you're going to have to get more fish tomorrow, and you're going to sell those, and some of them you're going to sell, and some of them you're not going to sell, and they're just going to stink after a while, so you're still going to have to keep going out and getting fish. And whatever you do, just understand, it's just fish. Your great catches, your not-so-great catches, your successes, your failures, your toys, everything about your life, when it all comes down to boil down, it is just fish. Just fish. There's something more important, and it's people. So I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. How to see what's truly important and truly vital in life. How to give your life to something far beyond yourself and your career and your income. I'm going to teach you to fish for people. And what he did was he took his career and just elevated it a ton. He said, this is what really matters. Everything else, everything else is just fish. And Peter got that. And so did Andrew, and so did James, and so did John, and that's why they followed him. And, and so did Levi. And we know that. We know that, Levi, because the first thing he does is he holds a party. It says, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were there eating with him. That's the only friends he had. See, he wasn't accepted in the Jewish community. The only friends this guy had was tax collector friends. But the one thing on his mind, which is the same thing as we looked at at the friends last week who had to get their friends to see Jesus, the paralyzed friend of theirs who had to get to see Jesus, he said, the only thing I got to do, I got to get my friends to see Jesus. I got to get my friends to meet Jesus. I got to get my friends to hear this guy. I got to get my friends to connect it up with him. And so what he did was he held a party. And I am sure, I am sure as I visualize this thing, he is thinking to himself as he's putting out the invitation list, oh, gosh, if I invite Jesus, I got to invite Peter. I hope he keeps his mouth shut. Oh, man. And, oh, you know, if Simon shows up and he starts talking politics, it's going to ruin everything, you know, because he's going to start complaining about the latest tax hike. And here's all my tax collector friends. And, oh, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess. And, and, oh, and Thomas, I hope nobody talks to Thomas because he's so stinking shaky in his own faith. He's just going to undermine everybody's faith. But he's going to take the risk. Because he wants his friends to meet Jesus. And I think Jesus is looking for people, for followers, who will just find ways to introduce their friends to Jesus. For years now, we have, and, and some of our friends have done this. Actually, from the beginning of the church, we've had what we call Matthew parties. And we specifically put together a list of friends. Some who are our friends from church, some who are our friends outside of our church. And we just get them together. We don't have a Bible study. 
We don't do a whole lot of preaching. We do very little preaching. In fact, we do no preaching. I just want my church friends to meet my unchurched friends, and I want my unchurched friends to meet my church friends and let Jesus do the rest. So this is your change the way people view the church assignment this week. Plan a party. It's an easy one, yeah. Some of you are, I'm there, I'm there. But here's the deal. Plan a party, not just for your church friends. Plan a party that'll bring together your church friends and your unchurched friends. And just see what Jesus will do with it. And if you say, well, my house is too small, or I don't, I'm not a big party person, or I don't know how to do it, then, then get together a few friends and just go out to dinner together with them. We've done that too. But just find a way, plan a party, plan an event, plan something this week, okay? You may not be able to pull a party together for the whole week, by the end of the week, but this week, plan a party, put together a, a guest list, invite your friends, and have a party. Have a party with your friends, your Jesus friends and your non-Jesus friends, and just see what Jesus will do with that. Because so many people outside the church don't feel they're loved by people in the church. And if we could just get each other together, I think Jesus could do some pretty powerful stuff with that. So that's your homework. And by the way, some people won't understand that. And the people who won't understand it the most will be religious people because they're the ones who complained about Jesus. But he said, listen, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. Didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the truth is, that's all of us. (laughs) We're all sick with this sickness called sin. And we all need to get healthy. And Jesus is the healer. So that's your assignment for this week. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.